and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast today with special guest Amanda Palmer. <gasps> you left out my middle name, Mike. Okay, you want to try that again? <laughs> no, I think we should keep all this. All right. <laughs> Do we have to bleep the middle name? <laughs> Amanda fucking Palmer Thanks, just Mike. published a brand new book called The Art of Asking. And we're excited to have Amanda on the podcast. And the way it's going to work today is that she's going to do a brief reading from the book. And then that will lead into a discussion with the rest of us, which is Dennis and Hirsch and myself, Mike. Groovy. Let's do it. All right. Go for it. Page 42. For those of you following along at home. Yeah, and for those of you who have a sentimental attachment to the number 42. Oh, yeah, that's true. I've had a problem feeling real all my life. I didn't know until recently how absolutely universal that feeling is, though. For a long time, I thought I was alone. Psychologists have a term for it, imposter syndrome, but before I knew that phrase existed, I coined my own. The fraud police. The fraud police are the imaginary, terrifying force of real grown-ups who you believe at some subconscious level are going to come knocking on your door in the middle of the night saying, we've been watching you and we have evidence that you have no fucking idea what you're doing. You stand accused of the crime of completely winging it. You are guilty of making shit up as you go along. You do not actually deserve your job and we're taking everything away. And we're telling everybody. I mentioned the fraud police during a commencement speech that I recently gave at an arts college. And I asked the adults in the hall, including the faculty, to raise their hands if they'd ever had this feeling. And I don't think a single hand stayed down. People working in the arts engage in street combat with the fraud police on a daily basis. Because much of our work is new and not readily or conveniently categorized. When you're an artist, nobody ever tells you or hits you with the magic wand of legitimacy. You have to hit your own head with your own handmade wand, and you feel stupid doing it. There's no correct path to becoming a real artist. You might think you'll gain legitimacy by going to art school or getting published or getting signed to a label, but it's actually all bullshit, and it's all in your head. Basically... You're an artist when you say you are. And you're a good artist when you make somebody else feel or experience something deep or unexpected. When you've made it in academia, you become a tenured professor. It's official most of the time, though. Outside appointment and approval, congratulations, you're an official professor, you're an official CEO or a president, in any of these fields doesn't necessarily silence the fraud police. In fact, that outside approval can make the fraud police louder. It's more like fighting them in high court instead of in a back alley with your fists. Along with the layers of official titles and responsibilities come even deeper, scarier levels of, oh fuck, they're gonna find me out. Coffee break. Just so you don't have to like freak out and tiptoe. (laughs) Thank you. That's beautiful. No, I'm, I've been tur- trying to turn myself into a grown-up. Real grown-up who drinks black coffee. <laughs> Where were we? Oh, fuck, they're going to find me out. 
I can imagine a seasoned brain surgeon in the moment before that first incision having that teeny moment where she thinks, for real, I dropped my cell phone in a puddle this morning. I dropped my cell phone in a puddle this morning, couldn't find my keys, can't hold down a relationship, and here I am clutching a sharp knife about to cut someone's head open and they could die. Who is letting me do this? This is bullshit. Everybody out there is winging it to some degree. Of this, we can be pretty sure. In both the arts and in the business worlds, the difference between the amateurs and the professionals is simple. The professionals know they're winging it. The amateurs pretend they're not. Awesome. My book is available um, <laughs> on audible.com. Uh, did you read the... Uh, I, I did. I read the audio book, and I actually really... I had, I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah? Yeah. Um, and I actually I did the very last editing draft... Because my, my book was so down to the wire, I basically, like, the ink was fresh as I handed it in. I'm actually, I'm finding tons of mistakes in it. There are, like, at least, I've, I've found at least um, 10 or 20 mistakes in the book because it was just, like, I wrote it in seven weeks, I edited it, I handed it in, and they sent it to, to press. Books, books should have, like, an upgrade cycle. <laughs> well, right. yeah, I mean... Well, they the do second, have the second, the second printing, edition. right? Um, so I was going to say, you sounded really practiced. Did you have to go through the book several times when you were recording it for Audible, or was it just, like, that? that's Well, I actually... Uh, I don't want to give Audible more credit than they deserve. I actually <laughs> I actually didn't record it for Audible. I recorded it for uh, for Hachette. Right. And, um, and they also own the audiobook. But... Um, I mean, I, I sat in a I sat in a room with an engineer and someone also from the publisher, just reading along, making sure I wasn't making any egregious <laughs> mistakes and catching little things like, as you sit here reading this book, and she'd be like, "Sorry, Amanda, as they're listening, this is the audio book." Um, it was really it was really fun though. It was, and and I had this captive audience of two people, right. and I'm a performer. So I was like, I have to emotionally affect these two people. And I would be like glancing in like, did you cry at that section? I'm like, hello, are you in there? It was great. It was a really, really fun experience. And I, I had no idea how many fucking people listen to audiobooks. I just didn't know. I've yeah. never listened to an audiobook in my life. And as soon as the book came out, um, my Twitter feed exploded with, you know, what I expected, which is all the people who pre-ordered the book. But like, thousands of people binge listening to the audiobook and it made me so happy that I had taken the time I took three full days and read it and I was so happy um that I didn't trust somebody else with my baby um because you know there's a lot of things in here that only I really understand what the inflection is and I didn't want to hand it off to somebody else you know if you listen to audiobooks a lot I have this happen to me I don't know if it happens to other people but I'll forget which books I listen to on my phone and which books I actually read. It, and it's it really bizarre. Together? Yeah, it kind of blends together. Them. Well, that's good, though. I mean, it's yeah. like, it, it is, it's yeah. reading with your brain. It's yeah. words going into your head. Well, so this weird thing will happen also where I'll have this book and I listen to it in an audiobook and then later I'll forget I listen to the audiobook and then I'll start reading the book and I'll be like, this sounds so familiar. And I don't yeah. know if it's because <laughs> the plot is hackneyed or if I've actually read this story before. And then I'm like right. halfway through and I'm like, Oh man, I have the audio. Neil's got, uh, I think it's a, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's an audible thing or it's an iTunes, whatever mm -hmm. it is. It's like, you might even know what I'm talking about. He's got some kind of, um, 
syncing device for his Kindle and his audiobooks so that oh, really? if he if he leaves off audio in he can match. Think, It'll just drop wow. you off right in your Kindle where I, you've been listening. I think Audible does that now. I, I, I mean, I don't use Audible, but I've seen that, that or, or heard something where they're making it really advanced. And days. I've heard that there are people who like, and this is sort of like getting into a deep realm of book fetishism <laughs> that like I have not encountered, but Neil knows all these people because these, you know, he's been in book world for so many years. By the way, Amanda's talking about Neil Gaiman for those Gaiman. Uh, listeners. The Gaiman yes. that in case listeners don't know. People know. Okay. No, you know, I do that. It's a bad habit. Yeah. My husband's also a writer. He's written several books yeah. and also some comic books. He's very talented. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm from Long Island all of a sudden. Um, uh, there are people who really like uh, listening to the audiobook while they read along. Oh, really? Yeah, like That's a completely, bizarre. it's like yeah. a total 360 experience while someone dressed as Amanda Palmer rubs your feet <laughs> and, paint, and paints your eyebrows on. Well, there's some audiobooks that are like crazy big productions, right? Yeah. Like Mel Brooks' son, and I don't remember his name, oh, Max Brooks, he, he did this book called World War Z, which is like this a very sober take on like a post-apocalyptic zombie world. Uh, but every chapter is read by another major like Hollywood actor, right? You know, yeah. the, the guy from yeah. Nash who's well, on. Well, and, 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 and you find this out also if you're married to Neil Gaiman, um, there's, there's, a, there's, there's awards. There's the Audis, which are the, right? <laughs> oh my awesome. gosh. This is like, I, I, only found out, I only found out that there were jam band Grammys called the Jammies because I had a jam band manager for a while. But yeah, I mean, There's, it's it's a world like, and that's the thing I've I've actually found out writing a book. Um, you discover is the all the all the worlds right. that you didn't know existed um, when you become an author and you write a book, and um, yeah. you know, like like all the things that you that I found out when I got into the music business and didn't realize like all of these strange pockets of existence. <laughs> How similar do you think the two worlds are? I, I think they're so similar in some ways and so very different in others. I mean, um, having gone through the production cycle of making an album, mm-hmm. there's so many similarities, even like artistic similarities from, you know, the, the, the first draft and the editing and then the, and then the re-editing and then the exhaustion that sets in was a lot like writing and then recording and then mixing and like, and the, and the deep, uh, pockets that you get into when you're mixing a song and you're literally looking at every single little teeny level of every hi-hat and you're dealing with things and, you know, decibel levels and shit that no one really hears in the final product, but you're in here like, doing word searches because you've been overusing the word actually in this chapter and you're just going in and fucking fine tuning every little bit. Um, and there were a lot, there were a lot of, uh, process parallels like that. And then, you know, and then this thing is turned into a physical object and then the physical object goes out to the world and then it hits the world and they have their own interpretation of it and their own experience. Um, What's been fascinating to me is looking at the difference between being on a major label and being on a major publisher. Yeah. And granted, um, I had one of the shittiest experiences <laughs> on a major label uh, that I think it's possible to have. You know, I didn't, um, I wasn't, you know, beloved by Seymour Stein and signed to Sony and made the darling of a, of a really, you know, old school highfalutin record label. And I wasn't on Matador and I wasn't on one of, you know, the super hip you know, indie labels like Secretly Canadian or, you know, or whatever. 
I was on a really, 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 um, you know, I don't want to call them shitty, but <laughs> like a really cutthroat bottom line, you know, factory kind of metal label where they really just were not about artist development and they were really just about like, how are we going to sell as many records as possible? And they took almost no input from us. And I've, I've had a really wonderful experience with my publisher and, but it's, you know, it's also, it's a, it's a chicken egg thing. It's like if I had walked in, you know, as a naive 25 year old, knowing nothing about fucking anything, you know, what kind of experience and with no respect in the, in the, in the industry as a whole, um, you know a little bit more now. <laughs> I, I know a lot. I know a lot more. And I, I think I'm probably also easier to work with. When I was 26, it was like, these are my songs. This is my <laughs> world. This is my fucking life. Um, and now I, I'm, I'm a lot easier when it comes to stepping back, compromising, you know, letting somebody just do their job and like not running over to their desk and shuffling their fucking papers around and going, no, that's not the way I would, you know. So uh, I think... I think there's a little bit, bit of that in that thread, but seriously, the way um, the way I've seen the publishing world treat its authors, it's like being in a foreign country, <laughs> um, because, and it's also it's sort of like when you get out of an abusive relationship and you're like, oh my god, I didn't know such a thing was possible. <laughs> um, the pu- the publishing industry seems to really understand that their art comes from artists, that their books come from writers and that they need to take care of the people who make the shit that sells the product that pays for their, you know, that that pays their salaries. And they feel the ecosystem a lot more um, than the major label system where it really felt like the artists were just fucking disposable because there was another band down the street that would, you know, that that they could sucker in if they couldn't sucker you in. I don't think, well, Amanda, like, I don't think everyone has that great of an experience even with their with the book publishing industry, every I think you were probably a little bit more established because I'm a lawyer. Every once in a while, I'll get a client that's not so happy with. Oh sure, no, no. So, I mean, uh, I don't want to paint a yeah. unicorns and rainbows picture with book publishing either. But in my personal experience, yeah, which is of course all I can speak from, it's it's been black and white. But I'm also, you know, I'm 38 now. I signed that major label deal when I was young, mm-hmm. 27. Right. Ju- had just started my band. And, um, you know, and I know a lot more about a lot more now. So um, going back to the uh, that, the passage that you read, now that you have a book and it's a physical thing and it's sitting right here on the table in front of us, do you feel like a fraud as an author? No. Hmm. No, I mean, I sat my ass in a chair and wrote a book that, that's kind of hard to argue with. <laughs> I did it. Right, um, I mean, you'd done that with other stuff too, right? I mean, you'd made music and released the music and recorded the music. Yeah, I mean, um, my my rules, um, my rules, whatever. The, my personal growth in the um, I'm actually a waste of space, and why don't I have a real fucking job, and why aren't I contributing something decent to society? Um, uh, th- that um, you know, the that realization and that self acceptance definitely crosses all media. <laughs> <laughs> like once I could accept that, you know, and and this is actually writing a book is actually a little harder because this this isn't what I do. Right. You know, I'm holding the book up here. Uh, I do music. I identify as a musician. 
that's what I wanted to do. It's, it feels like that's what my fundamental, if you strip away all of the internet shit and all the Kickstarter shit and the book shit and the TED Talk shit and all of the other things that have sort of gotten hung on the coat rack of why, I, why I'm even sitting here, I'm a songwriter and I write good songs. And it is what got people through the door into my life to begin with. A lot of people forget this because, you know, because the conversation about everything else that I've done has become so loud. But, it, you know, it's hard to write a book. And even as I was writing it, I was like, this isn't what I do. I write music. I mean, I can explain all these things and I can explain my life and I can try and write this book and I can try and stitch this book together like a long opera which is what it is, actually. If you read this book and you consider that I'm a songwriter, it really, um, it's an incredibly musical book. But we should stage is, it. Yeah, <laughs> yes. The Art of Asking on Ice. Um, well, there's the, lots of little song lyrics yeah. in there, right? Yeah. 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 Well, and it's and it and it's and it doesn't take place chronologically, and there's lots of images that kind of tie together and tricks that I play on the on the reader or the listener, and. Um, you know, that I had to overcome that. It's just like, who the fuck are you to think that you can write a book? You're really, you're a songwriter. And yes, you've written a blog for a long time, but you know, I got over that pretty fast. It still hurts though, mm -hmm. you know, to, cause I've been deliberately, very deliberately not reading the book reviews, which I've never done before in my life. I've never put out a big project and just blanket universally, um, had the reviews, um, you know, filtered by somebody else. I've got my friends sending me the really good ones and that's it. And, uh, but I see the headlines and I've seen some of the headlines, like especially my hometown paper who like traditionally have a really, um, you know, difficult relationship with me and, uh, you know, and a, and a few other news outlets. And I don't need, you know, I don't need to go very far to just see the headline flash by on Twitter that like this book is a steaming pile of shitty narcissism. And, you know, Amanda Palmer has absolutely no value to add to the world. And, you know, those are my ins most insecure voices talking to me <laughs> going like, oh my God, my book really is a steaming pile of narcissism. And, you know, why do I think that me sharing these stories is actually going to help anybody? But those um, those moments of self-doubt are erased really quickly yeah. by just going to my Twitter feed and seeing thousands of people saying, oh, my God, this this book really affected me. Oh, my God, this chapter really resonated with me. Oh, my God, I'm sitting here at the bus stop crying. And I'm like, well, you know, there are the critics. Right. And maybe the book didn't affect them. But I didn't write the fucking book for the critics. I wrote I wrote this book for anyone uh, who would be affected by it, and that's fine. Right, and if I mean, if there were no criticism at all, then then you probably didn't go far enough in some sense, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, just the fact that you know, wh whenever you do anything, if you're if you're asking for a reaction, right? Part of that reaction sometimes is you know, sometimes people are going to react negatively, and that probably means that you know you're pushing a lot of the right buttons, actually. Yes, and you know, and everyone always says that intellectually. Um, it's only been really in the last few years of my life, especially as, as I come under like greater and greater fire from more areas that I really buy that, that I really believe it, that, um, you know, that the, the criticism or the controversy or the, like the degree to which, you know, people are yelling at you and, um, calling you useless or calling your work irrelevant or calling your opinion. It really, it really has started to feel like a badge of honor. 
that so many yeah. people disagree with me. And, um, and I, you know, and it took me, it took me like hitting the bottom of the barrel and reading, um, some, you know, some like deep below the belt criticism in really big, legit news media. There was a, there was like a blog in the New Yorker around the time of the Kickstarter and this guy, this guy, I forget the journalist's name, but he just like ripped me a new one and was like, Amanda Palmer is the most inauthentic, narcissistic, fraudulent artist to have ever walked the earth. And we, you know, I don't understand why. And, and he wrapped up his article saying that one of my worst offenses was that I called my music Brechtian punk because how dare I compare myself to Bertolt Brecht who was actually making real art and how dare I call myself punk, you know, unlike all of these really, really admirable people like the, you know, like the, the punk bands of the seventies. Of and at that moment, and there I am like crying reading this article. <laughs> and at that moment I stood back and was like, wait a second, this is the New Yorker. And so, you know, we're talking mainstream press and they fucking hated punk and they hated Brecht. And I'm like, wait a second, I've arrived. (laughs) Like he, this guy is basically without knowing it, actually putting me right on a shelf with my heroes who were so, so fucking hated and laughed at in their, in their moment at their time. And, you know, and then of course people looked back and thought that Brecht was actually making incredible, important art, but he was considered a joke. His plays were were considered ridiculous. So, I mean, that was a real, I, I thank that New Yorker blogger because I, that was one of those moments where like it hurt so much. And then I realized this is one of those, the only way out is through. And I, you know, I think I actually really feel this for real for the first time that, if I really want, if I really want my work to be significant and my, you know, my art to be real, and if I really do want to be an authentic artist, this is just going to be my life forever. And that's great. Right. So I think to some extent you're realizing that the, the fraud police sometimes themselves are a fraud. Well, the fraud police are a fraud, right? They're the fraudulent fraud police. I mean, (laughs) and it is, I mean, the fraud police wear two masks. They wear you know, they're a projection from inside your head of who you think the position of authority to judge is. And that is the secret that, you know, that artists, if they, if they get there, learn, which is they don't fucking exist and that there is not a board out there. And there is not there's not a set of high court judges who get to decide about your art, who get to decide whether or not you've, past the bar you have to do it and and that's also the thing about being an artist is like you kind of don't want to do it you want someone else to come along and accept you um but even when that happens and you see this this is why fucking artists go crazy like even when you're there with your arm full of grammys it's not enough like if it hasn't happened on the inside then you're standing there with your grammys going oh my god this isn't real. I, you know, someone out there is looking at me going, this is total bullshit. And, and it's only, it really only happens internally. And those things can help. And the shelf full of Grammys can help. But I've found that, you know, it's not the Grammys and it's not the review in the New York times. It's, 
it's the direct effects that you have on the human beings that are that are face to face with you and your art. And I talk about this in the book and I talk about touring in the early days of the Dresden Dolls. And I was really insecure and really afraid and didn't know if I deserved to be up there playing my stupid songs that were really personal and angsty. And I felt really ashamed that I thought I had the right to be up there. And Brian had no, Brian, the drummer of the Dresden Dolls, he had no problem with that. He was like, fuck that. Like rock and roll is amazing. And I play drums and I'm amazing. And let's go fucking rock face. And I was sort of like the simpering, pathetic one in the corner going like, uh, uh, and it was only after like, night after night after month after month of being in the van and touring and then if, and then year after year of facing the human beings at the end of the show and these human beings were students and lawyers and doctors and programmers and teachers and all walks of life saying to me your music helps me in one form or the other your music touches me your music um you know, comforts me, whatever it was. And you hear that from enough, re, you know, quote unquote, real people. And then I really started to understand, oh my God, my, my job as an artist is actually a part of the ecosystem. You know, and it took maybe thousands of people grabbing my arm and looking me in the eye and saying, Amanda, please keep doing what you do. It's not unimportant. And it, and it was them they they drilled it into my head. It wasn't Rolling Stone or Spin or MTV um, hitting me with the wand of legitimacy. It was me seeing myself reflected in the eyes of these other people. Do you think a, an, an Amanda Palmer today would have an easier time building that connection with fans? A, a lot of what you did was sort of face-to-face. -face. Do you still think artists have to do that? Or do you think you can sort of do it over Twitter, do it over YouTube, that kind of a thing? Yeah, I I think... Um, I mean, I have some really wonderfully authentic exchanges with people on my blog and on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, it's not as, it doesn't feel as profound as hugging someone and watching them cry. It just doesn't. I mean, it's, it's up there, but it's kind of like having sex with a condom. Like you can't, totally, you know, <laughs> can't totally feel it. Um, but I also, I mean, I think the other advantage, if, if it's an advantage, that you know Amanda Palmer at you know at 17 right now might have is the wand of you know the wand of legitimacy idea the idea that like you've made it when dot 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 like that list has exploded i mean when i was a teenager you made it when um you were on MTV and you were holding an lp copy of your record with a label stamp on the back that's when you made it and that's not true anymore you know, ask a 17-year-old, like, what MTV even is. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel like we looked at a pretty narrow bandwidth of what it meant to succeed. Your music was on the radio, your videos were played on MTV, and you were on a label, and you were, and you were huge. And that's, and that's really the only visible rock stars were the giant ones. Right. So what are, what are the signals now, what do you think? Like being on YouTube and having a million views? Or? Yeah, I mean, it's it's view counts and followers and you know, number of human beings listening to the single that you're putting out and the number of people expecting more music down the pipeline. And of course, like those old systems of legitimacy are still there. Like, you know, if you get signed to Capitol Records, yeah, sure, that's going to feel real. And if, you know, if MTV offers you your own reality show, that's going to feel real. But the, I think there's... 
there's a million different paths now. And I would, I would be really interested to see what those answers are. And I, and I talk to a lot of young musicians because I tour around and I talk here and I talk there and I hang out with them and, you know, I, I tour with them. And some of the answers are scary and, uh, you know, and not so tasty. And listening to a band say like, well, you know, we'll know that we've made it when a brand comes to us, you know, with an endorsement and we can, you know, and we're finally endorsed by Red Bull. And I'm like, oh, God. (laughs) But, you know, it's just a new version of the old bullshit, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, you know, the I I grew up with, you know, an idea of um, credibility that teenagers like no one teaches them about cred. Like doesn't, it just doesn't exist. Like to them, to your average, like 17 or 18 year old rock star wannabe, like getting a Doritos endorsement is totally cool. Whereas my generation is like, Oh my God, that's kind of the end for you. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a different aesthetic now. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Well, and, and people have talked about that too, where, yeah, just this idea that like there used to be this, the concept of, of selling out for those kinds of things. And, and today it's, it's not like that, but, Related to that, and I know we're we're sort of running short on time, so I think this will be sort of the final question. Um, you know, w- when you talk about all these different paths and different ways that people can go, like at least you know what I hear from a lot of people is that that part is really scary to them. They they like the aspect before where you know there was a single path. And, yeah, and, you, you just know, get on the con- you just get on the conveyor right. belt and or, like or, get chopped up, or or you fall off and you right. go and you know do some something else instead. Right. Whereas now you know there's a lot more opportunities, but the fact is that you know the path you just have this wide open field instead of this path that you try and stay on. Yeah, well, and there is something there's something I miss about that. I miss you know I miss the physicality of like my records out and everyone run, wants to run to the store to buy it. And I, I desperately miss record stores. I spent my youth in record stores, like as if they were church, going through, you know, going through the C section, the C section, going through the, <laughs> going through the C and the S section, looking for the Cure bootlegs and the Swans bootlegs, and getting really, really excited when I found an obscure Nick Cave CD. And I just, I. I think there is definitely something to be said for the, you know that kind of scarcity when like you were people were really loyal to their favorite bands and collected their music and listened to the filler tracks and collected the b-sides and were really completionists and you know not to say that um the teenagers aren't fans of artists but the music does feel more disposable because it is because yeah. because when you've got access to everything it's kind of hard to feel pride in your you know, in your collection of exactly 95 records and tapes and CDs, you know, wondering which three tapes you're going to bring <laughs> on your road trip. And um, and I miss that relationship. I even miss having it. Right. You know, I kind of, you know, I've got a, a computer full of music right now and, you know, can download a million new records a day. And I, you know, I miss going to the store and wondering which four CDs I'm going to buy. And it's... um. You know, but I'm also I'm definitely not a whiner and a and a, and a preservationist. I think we have to move on, and yeah. I think I think the question is, you know, what what's the new relationship look like, and what's my job as the artist to be in that relationship? Um, and you know, I think the artifacts are still fantastic, and I still print vinyl. Um, but I'm actually excited to move on to something. I think I'm going to be using Patreon, and I love the idea of 
um, of doing things fast and not waiting a fucking year for my album to come out, but like writing a song today and like running into a studio and tracking it tomorrow and mixing it on the spot and, and, and uploading it and saying, Hey guys, look at what I made, you know, what I made yesterday and then letting the good stuff float to the top and being able to point traffic what, you know, in what, whichever way I want. And, um, you know, I think it's important not to, not to get too sad about change. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a great way to end it. I know you have to get going, and uh, but I want to thank you. This was uh, a lot awesome. of fun. Yeah, a great discussion. And uh, for everyone listening, if you haven't yet bought the book, go buy it, whether the audio version or the the physical copy or both. Or both, or, or the or the or the many varieties of ebook. Uh, yeah. Yes, or all of those. Buy them for your friends. It's a it is a fantastic Christmas gift. It it's even kind of has a Christmas color theme. <laughs> um, thanks for having me. This is really fun. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks to everyone who's listening in. And we'll be back uh, again soon with another podcast. Thanks. And I'm officially-